0: Um, So, we are in the midst of a series. We're nearing the end, really. We've got like two weeks after this week in Philippians. We've been in Philippians since April of this year, just slowly walking through this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And this morning, we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it up, you can do that. We'll also have it Here on the screen, but one of the themes through Paul's letter uh, of the Philippians is this theme of church unity, of the church being a family of one mind and like a tight-knit, close community. And so in the theme of church unity, we've been having people from our church family read our passage aloud for us each week. So is anyone here willing to read aloud for us Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7? You can just raise your hand. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> There's no, no worry. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Thank you so much. We are in the midst of an epidemic, and I do not mean COVID-19. A recent study done earlier this year showed that 32% of American adults report symptoms of anxiety or depression. The data also shows that those rates are significantly higher among young adults. In the age range of 25 to 49, that number jumps to 38%. That's over one in three adults in that age range. And between the ages of 18 to 24, it jumps significantly to 50% of Americans that struggle with anxiety and depression. Another study done in the fall of last year, last October, revealed that 90% of Americans believe that there is a mental health crisis in the US. I believe if you, if you talk to any experts, read any writing on this, these facts, it will become very quickly evident that this is due to a whole host of factors, but the biggest, most experts will say, seems to be the results of the impacts of modern technology on our lives, such as the internet, the 24, hours, 24 hour news cycle, and most prominently, social media. It has been said that we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. It takes time to see the results of any new technology on a society. Facebook opened up to the public from just being a college campus thing in the year 2006. The iPhone was released in 2007. And more than 15 years have passed, and the results of the impact of the iPhone and social media are in. And while there are some positives to them, on the whole, they tend to be more destructive to individuals and societies than they are helpful. The cons tend to outweigh the pros on the whole. The truth is we are finite beings. We were never supposed to have infinity in our back pocket. We were not created to experience any degree of the omnipresence that the global connection of internet gives us. Where the felt anxieties of normal life, such as FOMO or fear of a pandemic, Anxieties around politics or a economy in recession are heightened and exacerbated by our glowing rectangles. The hyperconnectedness of the news cycle has introduced us to more news, more heartbreak, and more fear than our souls can often handle, and I would argue more than we were ever meant to handle. Scrolling has become our bedtime stories, and breaking news or self-help blogs have become our morning devotions. A new religion has emerged that will distort our mental maps and deaden our spiritual lives. Promising happiness, but ultimately producing and feeding on our fears and anxieties. Our society and it's not just America, it's the, it's the whole Western world, is riddled with crippling anxiety, many pastors will tell you that they get more questions about handling anxiety than they do about theology, the Bible, or prayer. And before we get in, let me say this. I don't know your lived experience. I don't know what your lived experience is or what it has been, and I know that the subject of anxiety will strike very close to the heart for more than a few in this room this morning. And I also believe that there is a God who knit you together in your mother's womb, who does know your lived experience and loves you more than you could imagine. And his desires for his children to know freedom, healing, and peace. And I want you to know that as I stand up here, I don't know what your experience has been like, but I care about you. And I desire for our church family to walk in healing and freedom and in peace. And so I ask for your grace this morning as we, as we walk through this and to just stick with me through the end. If you at any point you feel ready to give up and check out, please stick with me. But here we go. At the very center of our text this morning is this line from Paul. Do not be anxious about anything. A scripture that many of you have probably heard at least once in your lifetime, and that for most of us produces a reaction that sounds something like, okay, Paul. (laughs) Easy for you to say, dude. Like, you didn't know what 2023 was gonna be like, man. You don't know what it's like to have an iPhone. You don't know what it's like to have student loans. You don't know what it's like to have kids. You never had kids, Paul. It's just not that simple. And it's not. It's not just that simple. That's a problem that arises often when we read a verse like this without looking at the bigger picture of everything going on around it. You see, Paul didn't simply say, don't be anxious. I think we all agree that that would be pretty foolish, but Paul gives us a roadmap for exchanging our anxiety for the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And that roadmap actually begins two verses before. In verse four, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And I'm not gonna focus there. Josh gave us a beautiful teaching on that last week. You can go check out on the podcast, go and listen to it. But he begins, Paul begins, rejoice always. And then we get verse five, where we're starting today, where Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Josh and I, as we were talking about these verses earlier this week and just kinda like talking with each other We're talking about how like most people, Christian or not, don't really remember, like we forget that verse five is even there. We hear verse four a lot, like rejoice in the Lord, and we hear verse six a lot, don't be anxious, but pray. But verse five is typically like skipped over or forgotten for some reason. But I think verse five is actually a key starting place for the rest of the text, that verse five makes verses six and seven even possible or comprehensible. So let's start there by taking verse five in two bites. One, because it's two sentences. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And two, the Lord is near or at hand. So let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What a strange verse to be right here, right? I mean, it's definitely not bad advice from Paul, but what is this sentence, let your reasonableness be known, doing right here, seemingly out of place in the middle of this paragraph? I mean, what does my reasonableness have to do with anyone's anxiety, right? And that word reasonable From the Greek, that the New Testament was originally written in Greek, that word there is a little tricky to translate into our modern English. I think one of the best words to capture what Paul is saying is this old word, forbearance. Bet you weren't expecting that word this morning. Um, But I think it's a helpful word, even though it's kind of old. Most modern translations don't use that word because we don't use that word, so why would they? But I think it's one that maybe we should bring back, at least in the church or in conversations like this one. Because, I mean, forbearance, that's got a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Sounds pretty smart. You throw that one out like with your new college friends and they will think you're already like ahead of the game on them there with forbearance. But words... The words typically used to translate here are reasonableness or gentleness. And I think that those words actually hold us back a little bit from getting the full picture of what Paul is trying to communicate because those words are somewhat narrow in our modern English. But forbearance, it encompasses kindness, gentleness, patience, self-restraint, and generosity towards Rivals and the marginalized. Notice how many fruit of the Spirit from Galatians are wrapped up in this one word, forbearance. It's a word that reflects the humility of Jesus' character, and it's all external. It's all outside of ourselves. It has to do with how we treat and deal with others, whether they're followers of Jesus or not. One scholar comments and says, we should demonstrate forbearance to everyone, saved and unsaved alike. The forbearing person does not insist on his or her own rights or privileges. He or she is considerate and gentle towards others. Of course, there is a time to stand for what is right. The forbearing person is not spineless, but selfless. So Paul, at the beginning of this roadmap of exchanging our anxiety for the peace of God, begins with this posture that doesn't always look inward, to have a posture that's always concerned with the self, but one that is often looking outwards towards others. And that, I think, is why this verse, seemingly out of place, appears here, because Anxiety tends to flourish when we are more concerned with ourselves than with others. Because most of our anxieties tend to revolve around us and our well-being. What if I get sick? What if I get hurt? What if I can't make rent? What if someone I love gets hurt? It's almost as if Paul is saying, you want to be less anxious? Start by thinking about yourself less and caring about others more. Start there. In the earlier quote I gave, it states that the forbearing person does not insist on his or her own rights or privileges. Forbearance is an anti-entitled way of being. A forbearing person may know their rights, but they do not insist on them. This is a foreign concept to us in the late modern West where you deserve better is a mantra around the brunch table. We are obsessed with everyone having all of our rights and exercising them fully no matter how it affects anyone else around us. Well, that's my right. where entire industries go on strike because they believe that they are entitled to a certain level of pay and certain benefits, where advertisements tell us that we deserve a more comfortable, more luxurious life than the one that we have now. The forbearing person knows their rights or privileges, but does not insist on them because their gaze is not set on themselves, but on others. Tim Keller once said something to the effect, he was summarizing C.S. Lewis, and he said, that the key to overcoming our ego is not to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. One image for this that I kinda have is, if our soul is like a house, if that house has more windows than it has mirrors, And this is where Paul tells us to begin, with our gaze cast out beyond ourselves to others and to God. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. But then the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand can also be translated, the Lord is near. And it's the second part of where we begin this journey of exchanging anxiety for the peace of God. It's honestly pretty stunning to me that verse five is ever separated from verse six, especially this part of verse five. And here's why. Because the nearness of God is what affords us any hope in this life. And hope is needed to combat our anxieties. Hope is needed to hold them at bay. And I think Paul is speaking into a twofold offering at hope in this one statement that the Lord is near. The hope of God's abiding presence here with us and the hope of Jesus' imminent return. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And he says this, he says, Pray then like this. When you pray, this is how you pray. Our Father in heaven... And Jesus begins this prayer lesson by addressing God as Father and by recognizing his location. If you grew up like me, when you hear the word heaven, you think of maybe something like a cloud city up in the sky where God is far, far away from our everyday existence. But that's not exactly a true picture. The word In the original Greek that's translated heaven is actually, it's a plural word, maybe more akin to heavens, and it can refer to the sky, but it can also refer to the air all around us, up against our skin. Jesus was not painting a picture of a distant God far away in space, but he's painting a picture of a God who is as near to you as the air that you're breathing right now. Paul states the Lord is near before he tells the Philippians not to be anxious about anything but instead to pray about everything. Prayer is where we are headed, but we have to start here with the Lord is near. Tyler Staten once wrote, the deep fear that robs our prayers of power is the lie that the Lord isn't near. The lie that God has forgotten me, that I'm not in good hands, that my future isn't secure. It's the worry that at the end of the day, this God, near or far, can't be trusted, that he's something less than who he promises to be, and that really, when it comes right down to it, I'm on my own. It's a lie that we're all familiar with on some level that God isn't near, that I'm on my own. And that lie, it keeps our prayers apathetic if we even choose to pray at all. God, are you listening? Are you even there? And this is why Jesus teaches his disciples to begin their prayers with remembering how near God actually is. And it's why Paul is telling the Philippians, he's reminding them how near the Lord is before he tells them to pray. Because we're all prone to believe the lie that we're on our own. But if we're going to pray, like Paul is about to tell us how to pray, then we're going to have to have faith that the Lord is near, that he is, in fact, closer than we even realize. God's abiding presence with us in every moment, that's side one of Paul's statement. Side two is Jesus' imminent return. Much like in English, the word that Paul uses to say at hand or near uh, can refer to something being close in proximity, like this mic stand is to me, but also can refer to something being close In time, like we are nearing the afternoon today. It's something just over the horizon of time. And I am of the opinion that Paul is, there's debates as to what Paul is saying here, and I'm of the opinion that he is speaking of the Lord being both near in time and in space. And in regards to time, he's speaking of the day of Christ. The day of Christ, its this day that's been a theme all through Paul's letter to the Philippians since chapter one, verse six, where Paul says uh, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So it would make sense for Paul to conclude his letter with a similar tune and similar focus because although for us as a church family, that was all the way back in April, that we were in chapter one, this is all one thought-out letter and one stream of consciousness for Paul that really only takes a few minutes to read through, beginning to end, the way that the Philippians would have heard it. And so for both author and the audience, the day of Christ would still be very fresh on the mind. And this note here of Paul's, that the Lord is near, It serves as this reminder that the day of Christ is fast approaching, and that on that day, Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes, a reminder that compared to the hope of being raised from the dead with Christ and seeing him face to face, and sitting at the table with him, and enjoying the wedding feast with him, the worries of this world all seem to become a little bit less significant. And until that day arrives, we have the assurance of the nearness of God's abiding presence here today. So it's on those two hopes that Paul is able to say, any, say something that would otherwise sound hopelessly ignorant and out of touch with the human experience, something that would otherwise sound to us like religious jargon from someone who's never experienced anxiety in their life. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you don't know Paul, this sounds like some ivory tower advice that has no connection with the common person. But when you know that Paul didn't write this from a nice office in an ivory tower, but from a prison, that he doesn't write from a life of privilege and comfort, but he writes from a life experience of being beaten, stoned, robbed, shipwrecked, and wrongfully accused and imprisoned. This begins to take on a whole different shape. Paul positions us to operate out of a posture of selflessness and assurance that the Lord is near. But the tool that he hands us for our work and to combat anxiety is prayer. Don't worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. The Bible doesn't always hand you such a straightforward equation. It really doesn't. So you think when it does that we would lean into that that we would lean into that stuff that's plainly spelled out, such as stop worrying and start praying, but we don't. We don't lean into it because most of the time we don't buy it. And we don't buy it because we don't believe that God is near, and we often don't believe that prayer works. Prayer often feels like more of a formality then it does feel like a powerful strategy to unlock the peace of God in the kingdom of heaven. But on the last night of Jesus' life, in Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus, as he's looking forward to and thinking about the cross, he was so distressed and so anxious about what was about to take place that he began to sweat blood. This is a real medical condition that's been proven that under extreme stress, sometimes people actually sweat blood. And on that night, what was Jesus' strategy in the most distressing, most anxiety-inducing night of his life? It was to gather his closest friends and to pray. And Luke's gospel says that as he prayed, that angels, messengers of God, came and began to minister to him. Family, what would happen if we, as a whole, began to walk in faith that God is near and that prayer works? What would happen if we started praying like those things are true? I think we just might begin to experience more peace than anxiety as the Spirit of God gets a hold of our hearts and minds. And I think we just might see more of the Spirit break through into this very room. What if, when we're tossing and turning in our beds at night, we were to crawl out of our bed, crawl out from under our covers and hit our knees and let the Lord speak to our anxious hearts? What if instead of ignoring all the things that are overwhelming us in life by scrolling and binging, we had decided to sit with the Lord and let him minister to our soul? Paul encourages us to pray about everything, and he means everything. He lists here in our verse today almost every word for prayer found in the New Testament. Prayer generally, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of asking God for, to meet our needs, all of it. And in Matthew 6, that's sad. We have kids in the back. I hope that child is okay. Bennett. In, in Matthew 6, Jesus tells his disciples to not be anxious about anything. He tells them not to be anxious about what they will eat or what they will wear. He says that's what the pagans do. That's what the people who do not know God do is worry about what they're gonna eat and what they're gonna wear. But instead, you who know God, seek first the kingdom of God and your father in heaven who sees you will meet those needs. How do you do that? You pray. And you keep on praying about everything. I recently got to spend time praying with a guy. And when we first got together, when I sat with him, you could just tell that he was, his spirit was not at peace at all. And as we began praying together, he began to just voice all of these fears to God And after he had taken several minutes to voice all of these fears and concerns to God, we saw the Lord just come in and begin to minister to his soul. God began to speak to him and clear away these fears and anxieties. It was like God was coming in and removing all of the clutter in this guy's soul so that he could see God more clearly. And when our prayer time was over after like an hour and a half of praying together and just sitting in the Lord's presence, I looked up and it was like this guy had a new face. I kid you not. Physically, he looked different, like a different person. His face was softer. He had this gentle smile. And I asked him, I was like, how, how, what's going on in your heart? How are you feeling? And he said, man, I'm floating." said, I'm completely at peace and tranquil. And there are probably several reactions to that story in this room this morning that I just shared. Perhaps some of you are fired up and encouraged by that story. Or you may be pretty skeptical. Or asking, why doesn't that feel like my story? And I could tell you more stories like it. I could tell you stories of praying over my wife in the middle of the night as she is experiencing anxiety attacks, but ultimately, no matter where you land, just hearing me tell you a story about where I have seen this come true isn't going to change your lived experience. And it's for sure not gonna give you the peace of God. But prayer? Prayer just might. And the only way to find out is to pray and to keep on praying about everything. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends in the entire world. And Peter was with Jesus on that night. He would, when Jesus was so distressed that he began to sweat blood, Peter would have witnessed that firsthand. He would have seen Jesus Bent over in anxious prayer, crying out to the Lord. Peter would have seen the blood on Jesus' brow. And nearly 30 years later, Peter's writing a letter to several churches who are experiencing persecution under the empire of Nero. And he tells them this. He says, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties, all your burdens on him because he cares for you and he gets it. He's been there, he knows. Peter encourages them to pray about everything always. And friends, my encouragement for you is to pray about everything always. The funny thing about prayer is as much as we like to talk about it in the church, it can't be taught. It has to be lived. You have to practice prayer. And you can't just take my word for it. You have to go and try it for yourself. If you want to live a life of prayer, if you want to take God up on testing for yourself if there really is peace available through prayer, you're going to have to start by praying. Praying for everything. Praying for a parking spot and a busy parking lot, and praying for the rent money that you don't think is going to come through on time. Praying thanksgiving when our prayers are answered and praying prayers of lament when they are not. Praying through smiles and praying through tears. And to not give up on praying. But you have to go and see for yourself. Typically when we... At the end of our teachings, when we hop into like our time of communion, we circle up and discuss and reflect, and we have some like prompting questions. But that just doesn't feel appropriate this morning when we're talking about praying, stepping into the Lord's presence. And so this morning we're going to do something a little different than our norm. and we're going to pray. <laughs> um, we're gonna spend some time, I'm gonna, I wanna pray over this room here this morning. Um, and then we'll take communion after that. But I'm gonna invite you guys, go ahead and just make yourselves comfortable. Um, posture yourselves in a way that's comfortable. Feel free to stand up, sit down, do whatever you need. Uh, and to take it, just a deep breath. And just Relax. And if you are here this morning and you want to receive prayer for any experience with anxiety, if you want to receive prayer, I'm, I'd invite you to actually raise your hand right now. And for the people sitting around, if there's someone near you that has raised a hand and you know them, I want to invite you to actually lay your hand on them and pray with me over them. If you don't know them, just reach your hand out symbolically. Maybe don't touch someone if you don't know them. We're a church family, guys. We should pray together. Parents, we should pray over our kids and with our kids. Brothers and sisters, we're here to minister to and love on and pray for each other so Let's do that. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. God, I pray that you would just be present among us. God, for our our brothers and sisters, that need to experience your peace this morning. I pray that that peace would come. God, I pray that you would tear down the lie that you are distant, that you're not near. And God, I I ask that you would just, for your children here this morning who need to hear your voice, would you give them a word or a picture in their mind, God, that just resonates and shows your nearness? God, I pray that you would Bring peace of God that surpasses all understanding into this room, Lord, into the lives of your children, that we would experience in this church family freedom and healing and peace. God, would you teach? us how to walk with each other through this, through life. Would you make us a family that prays, that prays in our homes and in our prayer closets, but also, God, a family that just prays together, that moments like this are normal to to sit with one another and to seek your presence. Holy Spirit, come. For the next couple minutes, I'm gonna invite you guys to just stay there in that place, in that posture. Uh, Keep praying, I'm I'm gonna pass out Communion um, for you guys to take just individually on your own as you just sit with the Lord before we hop into our time of closing worship.